a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there. Did you miss me? Yeah, it took a couple of days off. By the way, don't answer that question. <laughs> I don't really want to know the answer. Uh, no, it took a couple of days off, unplugged from the Matrix, and I mean completely. Had the opportunity to uh, travel with my family to uh, the Stone Age, where there was no Wi-Fi, there was no cell service. Nothing but beautiful mountains and a lovely lake and a few bugs and uh, lots of family members. And I'm just, I'm not trying to flex on anybody when I tell you this, but wow, don't underestimate the power of unplugging every so often. I, I know you tune in because you want to find out, well, what's going on? Tell me, tell me what matters. Tell me what I need to be focused on. If I had to answer that question, you know, under, you know, pressure, time pressure, quick, what do I need to focus on? My answer at this point would be family. Whatever you can do to, to build those family ties, to create memories with your family members, I think that's probably where your time and effort is going to be very well spent. Let me put it this way. You may still worry about some of the things that are going on in the world, including a lot of things that you and I really don't have that much control over, but you will never regret taking the time to create quality experiences and memories with your family. In fact, if, if I can elucidate for just a moment here and just kind of tell you what I'm thinking. Um, 31 years ago, uh, my wife and I became engaged. In fact, we got engaged on the way to her family reunion, which takes place at this lovely little mountain lake called Alturas Lake. It's up in central Idaho. It's, uh, it's pretty remote, very, very rugged, beautiful place in the Sawtooth Wilderness. Actually, I don't know if it's wilderness. <laughs> That's right. It's in the Sawtooth Mountains. It's, uh, you know, developed campground there called Camp Smoky. But uh, we went there for her family reunion. This is where I kind of got the, you know, this is where we shifted gears. And I met her family for the first time. And uh, it was it was a great experience. Most of her cousins were young still. They were, you know, roughly her age, but still hadn't gotten married. And few had kids. And so now you fast forward 30 plus years and it was, uh, no, I tell you, that was that was quite a wake-up moment, looking around and going, look at all of us. Gray, balding, all of us guys are carrying some table muscle, and our kids have kids. And it was an, ex an extremely fun experience, but it was also a really solid illustration of, man, time flies. There is just, there's not time to, to postpone or, or procrastinate the stuff that really matters. Sorry if that sounds like a lecture. I just, I came away with my batteries recharged. I came away feeling very good about, you know, the, the future, even though there's a lot of uncertainty. And I guess some pretty crazy stuff happened while I was out. Somebody shot up a 4th of July parade in, uh, in Illinois. Uh, somebody else uh, blew up the Georgia Guidestones. I, I'm having a hard time feeling as bad about that one simply because those guidestones were really creepy. But nonetheless, let's dive in, shall we? By the way, I've got some great sponsors who make this show possible, and I hope you will take the time to to seek them out, to do business with them. They include Dixie Chiropractic, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and Garage Door Pros. 
Love these guys. You can go to garagedoorproservices.com to access them. So, uh, look, the holy month of pride is over. And uh, got an interesting article here from Gareth Roberts. This is from Spiked Online. Now, Gareth, before I read this, I got to point out, Gareth, I believe, is gay. I believe he, he makes that point in the article. Just so you understand, this isn't some some guy just ranting. But But the title here is what caught my eye. The title is, Your Sexuality Doesn't Make You Special. Subtitle, Gays Once Fought for the Right to Be Ignored. Now, the LGBT lobby demands our constant attention. So, Garrett, or Gareth Roberts, rather, says the holy month of pride may be technically over, but the Beatitudes and the homilies keep coming. Appropriately, one such thought for the day came to us through the medium of radio as LBC host and tireless campaigner Natasha Devon sermonized to her listeners on the subject of bisexuality, or rather on the subject of other people's indifference to it. She told the public on the day of, the London, on the day of uh, London Pride over the weekend, I want to exist as a bisexual person. The most hurtful response I get when I speak about my sexuality is, I don't care. Now, he says, I think this address tells us a lot more than was likely intended. There's, of course, an admirable chutzpah in uh, objecting to other people, not finding you wildly fascinating, as if somehow that's their problem. And even more in anointing yourself, as Devon did later, to the position of that most exalted of secular sinecures, the role model. He says, I can't begin to imagine the grandiloquence of setting yourself up as an ambassador for an unexceptional characteristic shared by millions of wildly differing people. And then the slightly creepy faux humility of the lecture certainly bolstered one of, he says, one of his own long-held beliefs. When a person feels a need to tell you how caring and empathetic they are, empathetic they are he says, run like hell. But he says it was the central plank of Devon's thesis that lack of interest in other people's sexuality is somehow ignorant and a thing to be resisted, that it stops her existing. That's what really stood out to him. And he says, because for him, and he suspects many others among the group formerly known as the gay community, people not giving a toss was always the glittering prize. Now, the big issue was that other people were excessively, obsessively interested. Their interest ran the gamut from raising their eyebrows in disapprobation to beating you to a bloody pulp. So he says, forgive me, Natasha, but I'll take I don't care over any of that and very happily. To move through life without the encumbrance of people treating you as as notably strange was, he said, I always thought the goal of the gay rights movement. Such disinterest seemed an unreachable fantasy in the 1980s and 90s. And now that, uh, to a large extent, we have it in the UK, to reject it seems churlish at best. Now, he says it's interesting that, like many younger progressives, Devon talks about growing up under the shadow of Section 28. Though, to be fair, he says, unlike some of the most vociferous of those ranting about it, she's actually old enough to have done so. This nasty, ludicrous piece of legislation, which we must remember was never actually enforced, not once, has taken on a dark glamour in the past few years, probably because it has the power to make Tories squirm. But he says what's forgotten and what's been forgotten and rewritten, like so much gay history, is that after its passing into law, it was of limited active concern to the gay community. The novelist Simon Edge, relying on actual research rather than folk memory, compiled a fascinating Twitter thread about the real concerns in the gay press at that time. 
He says, we forget it was illegal to employ LGB people in the forces. There was no legal provision for same-sex couples if one partner died in a, in a state. And that there was a ridiculous, uh, there were ridiculous indecency laws, laws that certainly were enforced around a different age of consent, group sex, etc. And there was so much queer bashing that it went unremarked. So that per- certainly put the hurt of being ignored into context. He says, for a movement supposedly dedicated to history with an H, the effects of Section 28, as if prior to 1988, British schools had been awash with positivity and free discussion about homosexuality, which he says, I can assure the younger generation they were not, have been exaggerated ludicrously. But a little bit later on in her exhortation, Devon talks about using one of the most gruesome words in the progressive lexicon of representing bisexuality to the world. Now, he says, I think she is representative, but not representative of the things she thinks she is. He says, I think she is representative of a dismal, narrow, narcissistic ideology that has come to smother the discourse around sexuality, along with much else. An utterly conventional movement, specifically Western and decadent, embedded across all public life, which is dedicated to pointlessly play-acting a fight with an extinct establishment that was conked out decades ago. A movement that disastrously imported the fantastic claims of gender identity to give itself purpose. For many adherents of the pride religion of LGBTQ, Gareth Roberts says to accept the glorious nonchalance of other people would mean having to accept yourself as nothing very special, which in Devon's world means not to exist, and the dread of that would be too much to confront. Now, I'll admit, that's probably going to leave a mark, but... I can't disagree with the thing he's saying there. And and it's it, we've come a very, very long way from where the LGBT activists once upon a time were like, look, we just want to be left alone. I think most of us were very willing to abide by that. Fine. You do what you want to do. You know, what's private is private. It doesn't need to be my business. But now we've come such a long way. And I don't mean to make a mountain out of a molehill, but, uh, you know, the stuff that was coming out, maybe it's just that the technology is finally, you know, bringing uh, the videos of some of the things that were actually happening at some of these various pride events and some of the parades. I mean, this is this is the kind of debauchery that would make uh, Sodom and Gomorrah do a double take just because, wow, are you really doing that in front of kids? All right. Leave us alone has become you must pay attention to us. You must give us preference. And I understand, we're only talking about the activists here. But Gareth Roberts makes a good point. All right, moving on. We've got some fun stuff to talk about, including gas prices, coming up next. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thanks for joining me here. Just want to point out that uh, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast version of this program, that gives you some options. You don't have to be sitting next to a radio. You could actually just uh, basically bring it up anytime. In fact, you subscribe to the RSS feed. It'll notify you whenever a new episode drops and you can listen to it at your leisure. So that's a good option to have. And I want to thank Garage Door Pros. 
They're located in St. George, Utah, but they serve St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Colorado City. Lots of growth going on in these areas. And this is a local company that installs services and repairs garage doors. By the way, garage doors made in America. That's important because that means that they have very quick response. They can get you your doors in a much faster time than other companies can give you. They also do commercial service. They have insulated garage doors. Nice when the summer heat is really asserting itself. There's a link that you can go to in my show notes, or you can just simply go to garagedoorproservices.com. Well, let's take a moment here to talk about gas prices. I know that's kind of a painful subject, but here's the bottom line. Politicians know that we're very unhappy about what we're paying at the pump. Having done a little bit of travel this last few days, I, I'm keenly aware of it. Kind of feel bad for my brother-in-law who brought his new boat to show us. And, um, you know, his his trip uh, wasn't, wasn't super far. It was from the Pacific Northwest, from Seattle down to, to Idaho. $600 to keep his truck fueled. And I presume there's some boat fuel in there as well. So that's one way. 600 bucks. Ouch. Now, politicians realize this kind of thing makes you and me a little testy. And uh, they're trying to, uh, of course, assure us, no, 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 we're on this. Don't be mad at us. We, we know what we're doing. But uh, here's the kicker. They blame the gas station owners. Got a great article here from Peter C. Earl. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. Peter reminds us that over Independence Day weekend, the Biden administration shifted its blame for rising prices, specifically rising prices of gasoline from Vladimir Putin to gasoline retailers. In fact, on Saturday, July 2nd at noon, President Biden's Twitter account invade. I like that because it's doubtful that Sleepy Joe typed this himself. My message to the companies running gas stations and setting prices at the pump is simple. This is a time of war and global peril. Bring down the price you are charging at the pump to reflect the cost you're paying for the product. And do it now. End quote. Now, there's a couple of things here that need to be pointed out. Number one, the, the margin of profit on gas is not that much. How do I know this? Well, my friend, because I worked at a gas station not so very long ago. And I, I spoke with the, the manager on a regular basis about, you know, how, how much do we actually make? And it's pennies on the gallon. It's not like, oh, man, we're getting rich. Look at all the people gassing up out there, paying these exorbitant prices, which at the time were, well, right around 2 bucks, maybe two twenty a gallon. I don't remember those days. But let's break down some of the numbers, and this is where Peter C. Earl just shines. He'll tell you on July 1st of 2022, average price of gasoline in the United States was $5.34 per gallon. Now, that's down from the high of $5.47 per gallon hit two weeks ago, but it's still a historically elevated level. On the New York Mercantile Exchange, gasoline futures prices are up 57% in 2022. Diesel recently topped 575 per gallon and now sits at 573 per gallon, its highest price in decades. The largest factor input for both gasoline and diesel is the price of oil, which has eased back some over the last month. But the major region reason for the price declines in both oil and products derived from oil are a mounting accumulation of economic data, suggesting that an anticipated recession may already be here. But even despite the recent price declines, West Texas Intermediate remains up over 37% in 2022. Brent crude up 38%. Now, he says both misinformation and disinformation are essential skills in politics, but under the pressure of rising inflation and slowing economic growth, the current administration has expanded that practice to new frontiers. 
The tweet, which was undoubtedly not written by the president, but to which he has lent his name, begins with a salvo directed at the companies running gas stations. Now, in fact, of an estimated 145,000 fueling stations across the United States, less than 5%, that would be 7,250, are owned by refiners who would be, as the president says, setting prices. But even that small number of gas stations are not ultimately setting the price of gasoline. The prices first derived on world oil markets, a major contributor to which are the decisions of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, are the major factor. Further, he says, more than 60% of retail stations are establishments singularly owned by a family or individual. And while that number has undoubtedly changed over the last decade, 2013 census data reported 61% of those stations are owned by immigrants. Thus, the Democratic administration that rails daily against billionaires and big companies has taken direct aim at mom-and-pop stores, in doing so assaulting the newest arrivals to the United States, upon whom it is clear the left and much of the Democratic Party stake their political future. Peter C. Earle says, As for the present time being one of war and global peril, how tied the interests of the United States are to either of the combatants in southeastern Europe is a matter of opinion. If indeed peril is to be avoided, adopting a far more neutral stance than that which has tens of billions of taxpayer dollars and lethal weapons being sent 5,000 miles would be a wiser approach. But it's by admonishing gas station owners to lower their prices that what is deep-seated ignorance, profound dishonesty, or both are exposed. In fact, even at the current prices, most gas stations earn a pittance from or actually lose money selling gasoline alone. According to Ibis World, where the average U.S. business has a profit margin of less than or just under 8%, actually it's 7.7%, the average gas station scribes by at less than a quarter of that, 1.4%. At 5.34 per gallon, the average national price of gasoline over the Independence Day weekend, a 1.7% profit would come to 9 cents a gallon. Whoopee! So the hustle estimates that after overhead, labor, utilities, insurance, credit card transaction fees, and so on, a gas station owner receives on the order of 5 to 7 cents per gallon. Even selling a few thousand gallons of gasoline per day would only generate a few hundred dollars, free and clear to the owner. Franchise City estimates that $50 spent at the gas pump goes thirty seventy-five to the oil company, $7 to refineries, $4 to the delivery company, a buck 25 on the processing and transaction fees, and finally, right at the end of the chain, you get $1. And that number can and does change, sometimes even lower, and most owners suggesting an average profit of 1 to 3 cents per gallon. Meanwhile, the federal gasoline tax of 18 cents per gallon yields a riskless, unearned fee to Washington of 3.4% per gallon. That's twice what risk-bearing entrepreneurs, most of whom are small business owners, and a sizable portion of whom are immigrants, are receiving. And that doesn't take into account state gasoline taxes, the highest five of which are found in Pennsylvania at 57 cents per gallon, California at 51 cents per gallon, Washington at 49 cents per gallon, New Jersey at 42 cents per gallon, and Illinois at 39 cents per gallon. And none of that takes into account the other costs and headaches that accompany gas retailing. Minuscule profits come with the costs and record-keeping associated with environmental regulations at the state, local, and federal level. So the awful business economics of gas station ownership are in fact why large oil firms and refiners aren't interested in it. 
That's why they've reduced their exposure to the consumer-facing end of the energy sector over several decades. Unsurprisingly, it's lousy financial prospects that push the fueling stations into retailing food, drinks, cigarettes, toiletries, and a wide variety of other goods travelers may want or need. All of those goods have appreciably higher profit margins than retail gasoline sales. And for many independent, single-owner-operated service stations, they're the key to their very survival. I used to see once in a while uh, where, where we were, you know, turning the highest profit on a daily basis. We tracked that kind of thing. And uh, it was uh, soft drinks, uh, actually drinks, beer and, and soft drinks in particular. That seemed to be where the, the greatest amount of sales would take place. Gasoline, yeah, we sold a lot. But in terms of the profit that uh, was being made, yeah, it was, it was a pittance. So cut some slack, Jack, <laughs> to the uh, gas station owners. And let's talk about some of the policies that have made this uh, a reality. That's something the politicians really don't want to face. Well, uh, what could we do to have more energy independence? Uh, I don't know. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome to the show. Welcome back, I should say. Hey, I'm happy to uh, welcome a guest. His name is Addison Hosner. He is an attorney in Florida. He is also a contributor to the Young Voices organization. And we've got a very relevant topic to talk about. Addison, first of all, I'm going to ask you, just for the sake of my audience, most of whom are meeting you for the very first time, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure thing, Brian. Thanks for having me on your show. Um, yeah, to, to your listeners, I'm an attorney based out of Florida. I practice a lot of civil litigation, primarily family law. Um, but prior to that, I was an intern at uh, the Constitutional Center at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. Um, I've spent plenty of time working in the public policy sector, um, trying my best to come at things with the most objective and logical reasoning approaches. And uh, if, if it's anything to help the, the listener kind of understand where I'm coming from, I, I'm uh, an independent as far as political affiliation goes. So I try to come at things with a nonpartisan argument and look at the facts. I think that's where a lot of the uh, a lot of the truth lies. But that, that's basically uh, who I am and what I do. And I am, in fact, a Florida native. So if they want to refer to me as a Florida man, they can. <laughs> well, I think you're going to find yourself in good company. I, I tend to take a much more independent approach myself. I'm tired of chanting bumper sticker slogans back and forth. And we actually have a topic to discuss that I know elicits some very strong reactions from a number of different angles, and that is what to do about student loans, in particular student loan forgiveness. Now, there's there's always, you know, the the reactionary segment that's going to be like, ah, you signed up for the loan, you pay it, and, you know, and there's no sympathy whatsoever. And I can kind of see where they're coming from if someone is, is just being irresponsible and not wanting to uh, to take responsibility for debt that they've incurred. But there's more to this issue, and this is where I'd like to bring you in. You actually say there is a generational aspect that probably should be taken into account when we talk about student loan debt forgiveness. Walk me through that, if you would. Sure. So, you know, I had written a piece about this, and it was something that came to mind primarily after listening to a lot of the senior members of Congress uh, discuss the student loan issue, especially with the pause in student loan payments, which was put in place by President Trump and has been extended now by President Biden multiple times, which has paused the need to make payments on their student loans, but I think more importantly, paused the accrual of the compounding interest. 
Well, this has caused a lot of senior members of Congress to come out saying that this is, like you were saying, a windfall for people who borrowed money, who should be paying it back, and it's their own fault that they're in this situation. However, a lot of these Congress members are from a time in which student loans were either non-existent or were brand new. They were being fabricated out of thin air by uh, President Lyndon Johnson, uh, one of which was uh, Representative Virginia Fox out of uh, North Carolina. She's a huge um, advocate that student loan borrowers should have been making payments and that this is a giant mistake. It's harming our economy. But when I did the uh, rundown on her figures of what she paid for her four-year degree at North Carolina Chapel Hill, it's astonishing. If I adjust for inflation, she paid $10,107 for her four years of education at North Carolina, for all four years. Um, then you look at the modern-day student at UNC uh, Chapel Hill. They're paying over $30,000, about 32000 for that similar degree. But I'm not including any cost of living, which, as we are well aware, has skyrocketed not just with housing but with food. Uh, cell phone bills weren't a thing. You need those now. Computers, got to have them. Internet cable costs, got to have it. These are costs now that the modern student's incurring. So that 32000 is probably more and closer to sixty, seventy thousand when you incorporate all of that. Now, um, there's ways you can combat this. I think there are people who have taken out loans that they you know, definitely shouldn't have. They went to schools that were too expensive. But for the better majority of individuals, I think they're stuck in a situation where their generation just so happened to be born at a time when the dollar is inflating, uh, cost of tuition is skyrocketing. The, the statistics on that are also extreme. And overall, it's creating what I believe to be a generational divide. So I look at this not as an economic issue. It certainly is. But it's a social issue as well. There's one that the, the baby boomer generation needs to understand that the millennial and Gen Z and to a lesser extent, the Gen X generations have had to, to face the brunt of. And it's the student loan burden. And it's, I think, going to have long lasting impacts on the future of our economy and also the social status of Americans in general. I'm not so interested in trying to find who we can blame because I think I think this is a source of a lot of our problems as well. We got to find somebody to take the blame. But talk to me about uh, the the cost of of rising tuition. Um, that that's probably something that's been going on before the the current spike of inflation that we're seeing now. What's the justification for these these rising costs of inflation? Is it because free money was was readily or I should free um, easy money was readily available through student loans? Is that is that why um, these universities and colleges have have said, well, why not? Let's you know get the price up here and, you know, get get something for this. Right. So those statistics are are staggering. The, the cost of college tuition at a public, again, this is just public. I didn't do anything with private because those are, are usually higher. Um, at a public four-year university in the last 20 years, tuition fees have been increasing at a 179.2% rate. That's, that's staggering. And then when you juxtapose that next to college tuition and inflation, well, tuition is also outpacing the rate of inflation by 171.5%. So when you look at those figures, you can clearly see there's a problem. A lot of that does stem from back when student loans were, were backed by the federal government. This was back in 19, I believe, 64, 65, by President Johnson. And what that essentially did is create this, I think, a vacuum for universities to realize, wait a minute, the federal government is backing student loans without any type of security. They're not asking the universities to contribute. They're not asking the universities to be on a certain graduation um, you know, percentage for four-year graduation rates. They're not looking at the degrees earning to income potential. They're just giving us money. So what that has done is, I believe, allowed universities to hire more administrators, hire more staff that frankly are unneeded, which have boosted the cost of tuition to line the pockets of uh, board members or university faculty. 
And when the university realizes the federal government will give us X amount of money for tuition, let's bump it up another you know, $2,000 next year. What does the federal government do? Award another $2,000. And they do this year by year. And you begin to see this just nonstop rate increase, which we don't see an end to it. So the federal government, I think, like a lot of things, has gotten involved in a, in a, uh, a market in which it truly didn't understand. And it, it also has relied upon the good-natured uh, belief that universities will do the right thing. And if we know anything about banks, we know anything about the auto sector, we know anything at all about businesses, which I think at this point we need to be looking at universities like businesses. The customer is the student. What do they do? They're looking to increase profit margins. They're looking to increase their salaries. And they're trying to hit metrics that don't, I think, inflect what is university's most important goal, which is to educate the students and to provide members of society that can contribute worthwhile skills. Instead, they're looking into providing what I call the college experience. How good your football team? How great is your football stadium atmosphere? Uh, do you guys provide uh, pizzas every Friday in the dorms and uh, an arcade in your dorms? I know some dorms at universities now are building lazy rivers. I mean, they're turning into glorified wow. country clubs. <laughs> and, and so I look at those tuition hikes, and then I look at these extreme amenities, and I put two and two together and go, this would not be possible but for – the thousands upon thousands of dollars that they are now putting on the backs of the students with degrees that may not be able to pay them back. Uh, but there's no, there's no accountability. So when you let schools run rampant, I, I think the government has incurred this wrath. And so blaming the students, yes, the student attending that school shouldn't be attending a school because they want to have a lazy river at their dorm, or they want to have the best football team. Would we like that? Absolutely. Who wouldn't love to have all the great things, but fiscal responsibility comes into play. The problem is, is the students who have no other option, that this is their only school that they can attend. And so they attend that school and now they're left with this debt. And it's not because they wanted the amenities. It's because that's the only place they could go. And now we're pointing the finger at them and blaming them for having this debt when if they wanted an education otherwise, they wouldn't be able to get it. Okay, help me understand this, because I I think I need a little bit of clarification. Was there a time early on in the student loan programs where basically there was accountability? In other words, it wasn't like, well, don't worry about it. The taxpayers will pick it up. But basically, if a, a school let out, if they lent out that money, they had to make sure that they were lending it to someone who who they felt credibly was going to take it seriously, use it for education and pay it back as opposed to, you know, making it rain (laughs) yeah a long time ago in a galaxy far far away there was a a time and place where where the schools themselves if federal loans were given they were being backed in some way shape or form by the university it was a percentage of that of that that loan about 30 percent if i if i'm recalling correctly so in that case if a student dropped out or defaulted well the university now was on the hook to give some of that money back and that created a, a form of accountability that was completely taken out the window, and uh, you know we can't we can't blame uh, the schools. It's not their decision; it was the government. Who knows what kind of money was going under, and special interest groups were advocating for that. But we're at where we're at now, and you know the unfortunate reality is there's you know 1.7 trillion dollars in student loan debt for 43 million borrowers, which is a staggering amount. The average loan debt for those you know borrowers is 39 thousand dollars, and um, when the value of the dollar itself has dropped you know, as dramatically as it has in the last few years, 41% since 2000. You're looking at high debt loads with a dollar that's not worth what it was worth. So you know, good luck paying it back and making ends meet. 
Okay, Addison, are you good to stick with me for one more segment? Can you can you hang with me for ten more minutes? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I've got a couple more questions. We're talking with Addison Hosner. He is a Florida attorney. We're talking about student loan debt. But talking about it from a little bit different angle than maybe most people would expect. There's there's less ranting and a little more analysis here going on. I hope that's not making people uncomfortable. We'll be back. Just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. My guest is Addison Hosner. He is a he's an attorney in the state of Florida, but he's also a, a contributor for Young Voices, which is how he and I crossed paths. We're talking about uh, student loan debt. And in fact, I'm going to throw another word in there, Addison, forgiveness. <laughs> Boy, that one, that word seems to trigger a lot of people. Let's get your take on, on what exactly do we mean when we talk about student loan forgiveness? What does that mean? So the student loan forgiveness has come in many different forms. In particular, I think when people hear forgiveness, they think it's just a total wash that these loans are going to be wiped from the books and everyone who took out these loans is going to be cleared of any debt that they took out under their name and they get to walk scot-free, a total windfall for them. Um, I think that's looking at it slightly disingenuously. While that, in fact, would happen if a complete debt forgiveness were to occur, I'm not seeing that as likely. When the proposals that Biden has put out, for example, $10,000 of debt would be relieved for all student loan borrowers, what that would essentially mean is almost 46% of all student loan debt holders would now have no debt to their name. It's mainly low-income earners. A lot of minorities are impacted by this, people who weren't able to finish their degrees, maybe due to having to raise a family, whatever it may be. Those people would no longer be held back by student loan debt that is compounding interest and also is preventing them from being able to qualify for mortgages or credit applications or whatever it may be. Um, I know as a student debt holder from law school and graduate school is that when you apply for, for any type of loan, whether it be a car loan or a mortgage, Regardless of the fact if you hold zero debt, no credit cards, nothing, that student loan debt can be so impactful, you'll be denied for mortgages or it will prevent you outright from being able to buy a car. That's preventing, I think, uh, people from entering the marketplace, from being able to engage in you know, econ- you know, economical commerce and interstate commerce. And I think when you talk about forgiveness, that is step one. But the forgiveness that I advocate for isn't even that. I would prefer to be addressing these issues from something that I think too few congressmen make note of, and that is the interest rates. Interest rates on student debt is compounding. And for those who know what compounding interest is, it's killer. Uh, if your interest is set at 7% and you have a you know $10,000 loan, that interest of $700, if it is not paid, will compound back into that, pro- that principal amount. Now you have a $10,700 loan compounding at 7% of that and so on and so forth. And so these loan balances continue to grow and they're unable to be paid back. Um, in fact, 21% of all student loan borrowers see their student loan debt increase after five years of taking out that loan. Ooh. And it's due to these interest rates. Most student loan debt interest rates are set between six and 9%. It's a, it's a staggering amount and that's you know non-dischargeable. I think that needs to be known as well. That student loan debt is the only type of uh, personal debt that is not dischargeable in bankruptcy. It is only dischargeable in death. And uh, funny enough, President Biden was responsible for signing that into law back at the time as a senator. So, wow. Um, hey, let me you ask know, you this. Yeah. At what point could we call um, 
either the interest rates or the, the practices of the banks making these loans, at what point does that become predatory? Is there a, a level? Because it just seems like it, it works out very well for them. I mean, they're making great money on it. It's, it's a great bet for them. But there, there's something about that just strikes me as, as taking advantage. Yeah, I, I my advo- you know I advocate for the fact that I think student loan practices as they are now are predatory. Uh, you have situations where you know college is for a lot of professions mandatory. Uh, for example, if you want to be a lawyer, you have to go to a four year undergraduate program and then you have to go to a three year law school program. If you want to be a doctor, same thing, four and four years, dentist, four and four years, architect, engineer. These are jobs that require education and training. And so for someone who wants to pursue that and wants to pursue that dream, but they come from a lower income family or worse yet, an income family that's between um, 50000 and $150,000, most of the time is not going to be declared eligible for grants or scholarships because their family makes too much money, regardless of the fact if the family gives them any type of money. These students are left with no option but to take out the student loans because otherwise, well, don't pursue the American dream then. Go do something else. And I, I truly think it's disingenuous to tell kids that, you know, you can be anything in this country if you put your mind to it and you work hard and you, you strive for the best. You can be an engineer. Well, sorry, you know, little Timmy, your family makes too much money. You don't want to take out 90000 in loans for that undergrad degree. Tough. I guess you're going to have to just do something else. That's not what America is about. We're about encouraging our best and brightest to pursue the best and brightest that they can. Um, do so responsibly, of course. Private schools are more expensive than public schools. Uh, overall, you know, we look at the situation. I try to look at it more from that social aspect of what kind of life do we provide for our, our young people? What kind of educational benefits do we allow them to have? And if the barrier to entry is a financial one, that's completely fixable. That is something that's a policy change. Maybe um, go in there, disrupt how, you know, we talked about it earlier in, in the segments about how universities are jacking up their prices, maybe forming some type of price control. Um, these type of things, while to me could be considered anti-free market, I think are being necessitated. We're seeing what happens when we let the free market run its course with student loans, and it's becoming this predatory interest of, hey, charge whatever you want. They're forced to take it out. What do we care? Send them out of school with their debt loads. And, um, you know, I, I think some interesting statistics real quick, you know, average student debt among law school graduates, $160,000. Wow. Back in 1999, 2000, it was uh, $87,000. So you go from 87 to 160 in 20 years. Medical school, you go back to 1978, medical, me- medical school debt. Again, these numbers are adjusted for inflation, $53,600. Today, $215,900. Uh, these type of, of debt loads are, are unfathomable. Just going back to 2007, $18,233 was your standard debt load. Today in 2020, 36635 that's in a 13-year jump. You have a 100% increase in student debt. And these numbers are clearly, you know, I think, you know, preying on students who have been told by their parents, go to school, get an education, and make something of yourself. And they, most of them don't have the other option. So looking at this, I think, through the eyes of maybe a little more empathy, a little more compassion for people who are simply trying to better themselves, uh, I think that's the, that's the key. Granted, are there people who are going to schools they shouldn't be going to for too much money and taking out debt? Absolutely. Are they using their student loans to go party and stuff? Absolutely. But in any type of market, you have bad actors. Let's look at the banks, for example, in 2008. How many bad actors were we there? And the government bailed them out. Same with the auto industry. Um, these aren't new things. But I think punishing students is the last thing we should be doing 
instead of, you know, looking at this as an issue that has been brought forth potentially by the government's own policies. Addison, I'd like to get your take on just, I, I guess, largely what I'm talking about here is credentialism. It seems like, you know, to the, the formula that, that I've heard explained is, look, you study hard, get good grades, go to a good school, get a degree, and that's your golden ticket to a life of hard work and happiness or whatever the case may be. But how... Do we put too much emphasis on, you know, getting that college degree? I'm, I'm just wondering how many people out there with, for instance, a law degree are serving up coffee at Starbucks because, you know, the market's saturated and maybe the, the jobs just aren't there for, for their specific degree. I mean, how many art majors, for instance, are, you know, working in retail? I'm just wondering if it should it be necessary to get a college degree to, to be able to have the good life? You know, that's a great point. And one that gets brought up all the time, and you know, I'm I'm in agreement with a good part of it. Uh, again, you know, nonpartisan here, we have good discussions. Um, you know, it's like the art degrees, the film degrees, especially. You know, there's degrees out there that even sound like they're worth something, but frankly, what job do you get with an English degree besides maybe teaching? Yeah. Um, I think looking at student loan control, the degree that you're pursuing should be taken into consideration. You know, if if you're going to school to become an architect, uh, which you know, where my undergraduate at Fort Atlantic University, they offered a five-year program so you could get your architecture degree in five years so you wouldn't have to go do a separate master's program. That costs a lot of money. And I, I had a friend of mine go through that program. He has now been working as an architect for many years, making decent money. He's still paying back his loans, but it granted him that opportunity to finance his loans. It was a worthwhile investment. Meanwhile, like you're saying, there's plenty of art majors out there who are likely baristas at Starbucks. Was it necessary for them to go to college? And I think this comes down to a lot of it parenting. You know, I think the age old adage I grew up with it was, you know, if you want to make something of yourself, go to college and that's going to be your ticket to a middle class life. That's not true anymore. Uh, for those who want to pursue something, I think college should be a, something pursued with a mindset of intent. You should know what you want and you should know what, what it's going to do to get you there. Uh, pursuing, you know, a law degree, for example, it's an oversaturated market and there's plenty of predatory law schools out there. I think that, that a lot of that falls on you. Uh, that goes with, I think, school research in general. I'm not in favor of, you know, just forgiving debt for people who made poor decisions. They know what to want to do with their life. So they went to school to use it as like a daycare center. But um, for those, again, who pursued a degree because that's what they want to do, they have the talents to do it, but they didn't have the financial means. So they relied on the government. Punishing them for that is, uh, you know, I think a little anti-American dream. You're, you're locking them into a lifetime of debt that's non-dischargeable for something that they're now contributing back to society. And um, yeah, the whole the whole thing in general, if it's if it's for you, it's for you. But I think definitely looking at which degrees you're pursuing should be considered. All right. Addison, thank you so much for your time. We've been visiting with Addison Hosner. Um, Where can people find you online? You can find me on uh, Twitter at a Hosner, H-O-S-N-E-R. You can find me on LinkedIn if you'd like. Um, And then my website, www.hosnerlaw.com. I post updates of things I've written and appeared on. Um, So, yep. Thank you so much. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I'm really glad you could join me today. I'd like to give a shout out here to Dixie Chiropractic. That would be the, the practice of Dr. Ward Wagner. And I'd like to encourage you, take the time to get acquainted with him. Go to DixieChiro.com. There's a link in my show notes. It'll get you there. Or you can just simply, uh, you know, if you're in St. George, Utah, trundle on in there and say hello and get your back looked at. Well, we have a lot to talk about. I, I wanted to share something with you that uh, this was kind of one of the more interesting conversations we had in our, our family reunion over the uh, over the weekend. And we were talking about how can we, how could we uh, entertain our kids without exposing them to some some really crappy entertainment? Now, as adults, apparently we were just fine. And we were talking about all the different things we were watching. And I was like, wow, I guess I'm not the only one who's, who's watching some of these uh, somewhat uh, shady series, you know, like, uh, what is it, uh, um, Outer Range, <laughs> stuff like that. Yes, I admit, I admit, I'm 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 prone to watching some of the uh, some of the series on occasion, especially if one of my kids is watching it. I, I have a tendency to to want to see it myself. But when it comes to entertaining kids, particularly young kids, it seems like there's a lot of wokeism you got to be willing to wade through in order to find something that the whole family can enjoy. And I know I'm not the only one who feels this. It's like really, what, why? Um, if, I haven't seen Lightyear, you know, the Buzz Lightyear uh, bio flick, but I understand it's it's a huge flop, and, and I'm kind of grateful for this, not because I want to see, you know, Disney's employees suffer, but why do you have to in- include things that, that push this, this same-sex sex agenda on little minds? And there's apparently a same-sex kiss in there that... You know, it's just, just, wow, this is, you know, to infinity and beyond with how far we can push that envelope. So when it comes to family-friendly entertainment, Paul Rosenberg on his blog, freemansperspective.com, put out a request for for his readers to share with him the best family-friendly entertainment that they could find. And he says, at first I intended on vetting the list and commenting on the various titles, but then he says, I looked at it and there was far too many, so you're going to have to look into these yourselves prior to viewing. Now, this is wise. This is part of being a thinking, you know, clearly independent thinker. You have to vet things for yourself. But he says, uh, imdb.com seems to be a useful resource for this, plus he's also appended a useful comment at the end. But here is a list in no particular order of family Entertainment, and I know you're gonna you're gonna roll your eyes at a, f- a few of these. Um, the astronaut farmer, never heard of that one. The Andy Griffith Show. We actually have this one on DVD. We have several seasons of Andy Griffith, and I know people are like, "Oh boy, you know, so 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 simple it was still in black and white." Yes, but the humor in that show was real. It was immensely funny. There was a lot of talent at play too, but there was this uh, lack of edginess and crassness and sometimes once in a while you know Andy as the sheriff of Mayberry would impart some uh, some lesson that uh, really had some some meaning so yeah not the kind of thing I'd be scared to turn my kids loose with leave it to beaver was another one all right Mr. Rogers neighborhood you knew that was going to be in there didn't you neighbor uh Daniel Tiger which I guess is a preschool series okay I was very proud my daughter likes this next one Heartland it's, uh, how can I put this? She thinks I'm mean when I say this, but it's a Canadian cowboy soap opera. But it's actually a very well-done show. 
and you know I other than a little uh, you know gentle poking here um, Heartland is actually really something that the family can enjoy that doesn't subject you to a bunch of you know gore or otherwise gritty plot lines touched by an angel the shack chitty chitty bang bang now I'm going to warn you on that one the child catcher I had nightmares for years about that stupid child catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, but um, Dick Van Dyke was wonderful. Benny Hill, by the way, was really good in that movie as well. The Sound of Music, The Smile of, Smile of a Child, Davy and Goliath, Masha and Medved, that's Masha and the Bear, uh, Fixiki, The Fixers, some of these are obviously foreign, uh, Zig and Sharko, these are some I've never heard of, Larva, okay, Ah, the Waltons. There we go. The Kane Mutiny, particularly the ending. This would be especially for older kids. The Brady Bunch. The Courtship of Eddie's Father. Captain Kangaroo. Ah, here's one of my favorites. Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. The Donna Reed Show. You can't take it with you. Uh, wouldn't be, this wouldn't be a list without this one on here. Um, it's a Wonderful Life. Kiri and Lou, Soul, Coco, those are for more recent, Wally, Encanto, My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. Oh, yeah, all the guys are rolling their eyes. Okay, whatever. Um, Odd Squad, Nature Cats, Zootopia, The Goonies. I'm going to admit this next one has kind of grown on me just because my grandson James really seemed to love this one. Moana, great show. Pingu, Hidden Figures. Big Fish, that's a fantastic movie, by the way. Big Fish is, it'll catch you, though. If you're not shedding a tear at the end of it, you weren't paying attention. Bankruptcy of Little Jack, Dreamer, Tyson's Run, City Lights, The Secret of Nim, Fiddler on the Roof, Chariots of Fire. Very inspirational movie, that one. Uh, The Cosby Show. I know, I know, but there was a time when Bill Cosby was the epitome of wholesomeness, and so let's, you know, remember, his show actually provided some some pretty wholesome entertainment. Avatar, The Last Airbender, the TV show, not the movie, Where the Lilies Bloom, Sweetgrass, Toy Story, Wreck-It Ralph, Inside Out. See, a lot of these, this isn't all just a throwback to, you know, black and white TV days. Uh, Sarah and Duck, Puffin Rock, Tumble Leaf, Tales of Peter Rabbit, Madeline, Shaun the Sheep, I think that's, isn't that one of those uh, uh, Wallace and Gromit uh, claymation type ones? I think that is. The Gruffalo, Stickman, Room on the Broom, Peter Rabbit, Brambley Hedge. That one definitely sounds British, doesn't it? Uh, Greyfire's Bobby, The True Story of a Dog. Hachi, A Dog's Tale. Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet. Young Tom Edison. Now we're, okay, these two are dipping back into the 1940s. Edison the Man, also from 1940. How about this one? We'll go to 1939. The Story of Alexander Graham Bell. Madame Curie from 1944. The Story of Louis Pasteur, 1936. The Magic Box, Sergeant York, Blossoms in the Dust, Carbine Williams, Houdini, The Benny Goodman Story, The Man of a Thousand Faces, The Great Imposter, The Miracle Worker, The Birdman of Alcatraz, Mr. Roberts, A Pull on the Heartstrings. Okay, I remember seeing Goodbye, Mr. Chips as a kid. This was one of those matinee theater movies that, uh, you know, our, our moms dropped us off to. Okay, now go entertain yourself for a couple hours so she could shop in peace. I don't remember the plot very much, but I'm sure it was a good movie. I'd probably appreciate it a lot more as an adult. Uh, how about How Green Was My Valley? 
National Velvet, Miracle on 34th Street. Oh, here's a tearjerker, The Yearling. Let's see, what else? The Best Years of Our Lives, powerful movie coming out of World War II. Boys Town, 1938. Life with Father, I Remember Mama, Cheaper by the Dozen. Now, we're talking some of the older originals. Some of these have been remade, but they're still good shows. Old Yeller, talk about a happy ending, right? Uh, Swiss Family Robinson, The Bishop's Wife, Captain's Courageous. I mean, this list goes on and on. If you were to, to find and watch these movies, it would keep you and your family entertained for a long, long time. And the key here is that a lot of these movies point towards heroes who essentially aren't just psychopaths out there killing other psychopaths, right? It's not, it's not some vengeance flick that's just bathed in blood. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. What a fantastic movie. One of Kirk Douglas's best. And yet, you know, if you want to read the book, you'll find that that movie can open the door for young minds. And, you know, if you want to really go into some depth, read the book and you'll, you'll get even more out of it. Forbidden Planet, Lady in the Tramp, the Day the Earth Stood Still, Ricky Ticky Tabby. Okay, it wouldn't be complete without this one, too. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In fact, that whole series of the, the Chronicles of Narnia. Fantastic stuff. And, of course, the Brave Little Toaster, which <laughs> still keeps my fear of vacuum cleaners alive to this day. So I've got the complete list listed in the uh, article, which is linked in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Some of these, I get it. You know, they're not going to be for everybody. But if you're really tired of the uh, contemporary offerings and how they all seem to, to have some message of wokeness that must not be ignored, if you want to try some real entertainment on for size, this is a list that could keep you busy and keep you and your family entertained for many, many weeks, if not years, to come. And don't forget... There are often book versions of many of these stories as well, just on the off chance that you don't have access to electricity at some point and you want to, you know, still enjoy a good story. It's hard to beat a good book. All right, we've got to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I'm going to ask you, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, please do so. This is just a chance for you to find some really solid reading Articles that you can enjoy at your leisure. And if you wish to follow them a little bit further, I promise you will find plenty of information in the form of footnotes or links that will take you further into whatever the given topic is at hand. So you can do so by going to my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. All you have to do is click on the subscribe button. It's going to ask for your email address. I hold it sacred not to share or give your information to anybody else. So it stays with me but I'll drop a copy of those show notes in your inbox. You can check them out for yourself. And while you're there, you can also subscribe to the podcast version of the show. If uh, you would like to uh, stay up to date, just subscribe to the RSS feed at thebrianhideshow.com. Every time a new episode drops, you'll get a notification. Well, I wish that uh, Build Back Better was just one of those conspiracy theories. How I wish it was just that. I don't think it is, though. 
In fact, if anything, it's a very publicly stated goal now of the global elites. Jordan Schachtel, in a recent article on his dossier Substack, says, Build Back Better 2.0. This is where the global elites rebrand to rules-based world order. That's the new phrase that they're using. More hubris, less freedom, but at least they've got it right out in the open. He says, the free world is a troublesome slogan as basic freedoms have become a radical concept in the year 2022. In fact, I want to pause for a second before we go on. Have you ever had the sense that that we had this year in celebrating Independence Day where there was greater hostility toward actual freedom, like authentic freedom, more hostility, more contempt from from people high up the food chain in politics and entertainment in, in the public spotlight? I've paid real close attention, especially the last 30-plus years. I've never seen a time where there's been so much open hostility to freedom and so much just outright rejection of everything that we celebrate on, you know, Independence Day, including secession, treason, things like that. Freedom. (laughs) But, you know, the other two are tied to that. Jordan Schachtel says, The Western ruling class, which used to defend the idea of unalienable rights, has decided that such a term carries too much troubles or too many troublesome connotations regarding the freedoms of you, the members of the pleb class. So it's time for a rebrand and the deployment of some new rhetoric to protect the elites sitting atop the global hierarchy. And there's a tweet here showing one of the uh, speakers uh, saying, now it's rules-based order, whatever that means, but it's peppering their vocabulary all over. In fact, he has a whole series of tweets in which uh, the ruling elites, in demonstrating their supposed moral superiority, is now coalescing behind what they refer to as the rules, the rules-based world order. This is, I believe, uh, European Parliament's president, Roberta Metzola. Her tweet, delighted to welcome Prime Minister Jacinda Arden to European Parliament. The European Union and New Zealand are like-minded partners standing up for democracy and rules-based world order. There it is. Welcomed New Zealand aid to UA and strong position against Russian aggression. Need to further strengthen cooperation on climate and trade. Well, they're all singing from the same sheet music, obviously. Now, Jordan Schachtel says this rules-based world order, a bumper sticker slogan that has united the rulers of the Anglosphere, the European Union, and NATO powers against their foreign and domestic enemies, is easy to define once you understand what they mean by the word rules. This barb is being deployed repeatedly at the Russian government and the Chinese government in reference to trade policy in condemning its invasion of Ukraine as violating the modern construction that is the liberal international order or the illusion of Pax Americana or better yet, the rules of territorial sovereignty established after World War II. So here's a tweet from Australia House. The, uh, the resistance of Ukraine has brought democratic nations closer together, which have, shared, which have a shared commitment to rules-based international order, whether they be members of NATO or non-members such as Australia. Wow. And, of course, these rules are necessarily malleable, as our rulers have spent the last decades justifying the routine invasions of foreign nations under the banner of democracy, freedom, and the like. Why, here's President Biden 
Speaking at a NATO summit, at this summit, we rallied our alliance to meet both the direct threats that Russia poses to Europe and the systemic challenges that China poses to a rules-based world order. I feel like we should be chanting this with a chorus, right? So Jordan Schachtel says, after two years of our prized free world autocrats unleashing relentless COVID-excused tyranny upon their own populations, the rules seem to be continuously changing and reoriented at a moment's notice. Oh, look, here's a tweet from the NATO Association of Canada. Looks like a battleship out there. Happy Canada Day. In a world with many challenges, Canada works together with our allies to support peace, prosperity, and security. We work to be better and to preserve the rules-based international order. (laughs) Today we celebrate our achievements and reflect on our future. But Jordan Schachtel says when Russia invades Ukraine, they are violating the rules-based order. However, when Western powers invade the Middle East and Africa or subjugate their own citizens in the name of a virus, they're not violating the rules because their hubris-fueled moral supremacy allows these powers to determine who is and is not in good standing with the rules-based world order. Here's another tweet from President Biden, or his Twitter account anyway. In a moment where Putin has shattered peace in Europe and attacked the very tenets of the rules-based order... The United States and our allies are stepping up to support Ukraine and boost our defenses. We're proving that NATO is more needed now than it ever has been. Nice. Here's a tweet from U.S. Mission to NATO. NATO allies are committed to the rules-based international order, which benefits all. At the NATO summit, allies welcomed partners from Europe. Also, uh, the Asia-Pacific and New Zealand and others and Japan. Oh, my goodness. All part of this rules-based world order. So here's what Jordan Schachtel says. He says what our ruling class really means is that they want to continue making all of the rules. They have no moral high ground to claim, so a vague appeal to some kind of shared moral principles must suffice. But he says, in short, the rules-based world order is nothing more than a moral appeal to keep the same people in charge of everything. And I think that's a very accurate way of summing it up. Now, I don't know if they're likely to succeed, but this is certainly what they're doing. And in fact, uh, we're going to talk uh, we're going to talk about this a little bit later on in uh, in the program. We're going to talk about uh, how the the liberal world order, which is another way they have of saying this, is uh, apparently, you know, in their effort to punish Russia for its aggression against Ukraine, willing to subject the rest of us to a very measurable decline in our standards of living. This is something that was asked of one of uh, Biden's spokesmen, and and he was like, "Well, yeah, you know, we would we just have to suffer through. How long do we have to suffer through high gas prices?" I believe was was the question that was asked, and the answer was, "Well, until uh, we have uh, met the needs of the liberal world order." Now, I don't think this is sustainable. I don't think it's something that can go on forever. Uh, personally, I've already done what I can and continue to do this on a daily basis to withdraw my consent and wherever possible to avoid the control of many of these, uh, you know, rules based world order types. Now, granted, a lot of this is implemented at the macro level, so it does tend to trickle down to us, but there are various things you can do to still maintain your independence. And at the risk of sounding like the radical that I'm sure some people think I am, my, my number one, Focus as far as what they're trying to implement is don't ever turn loose of your firearms. Don't ever 
go along with any of their schemes to tell you, look, 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 you're perfectly safe. We will take care of you. You have nothing to fear, but you have to give up your guns. Don't do it. They can threaten. They can whine. They can cry. They can plead. They can even order you to do it. But if you don't do it, you still have the option of saying no and making it stick. They realize this, which is why they're trying so hard to uh, get these things out of your hands. Rules-based world order. Come on, let's all say it together a few times. Maybe it'll make us feel better. Or maybe not. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, I want to give a shout out here to HSLAmmo.com and a big thank you to Spencer Worthington for being a remarkable human being. He has a remarkable ammo company creating high quality new and remanufactured ammunition. Gives you a lot of options, can even be affordable, but it's also a great way to get yourself some, uh, some needed ammo to get out there and practice, to build your skill at arms, to uh, sock aside for maybe a rainy day. You know, it's a great store of value. A lot of friends uh, jokingly and maybe not so jokingly refer to it as, you know, the other precious metals, lead, copper, and brass. But if you're in the market for ammunition, HSLAmmo.com. That's one of those sponsors I would recommend you get in touch with and do some business with. So I'm going to jump ahead to this one, uh, Michael Snyder. This whole, it was, it's good for you. Remember when your parents would tell you, you eat that broccoli, you eat that cauliflower, it's good for you, even as you're trying to gag it down. I don't like this stuff. Well, we have a similar dynamic at play right now with politicians telling us that we need to suffer through a recession for the good of the liberal world order. Michael Snyder asks, how much are you willing to sacrifice for the future of the liberal world order? He says, as you will see below, the Biden administration is trying to convince us that supporting the liberal world order is far more important than any short-term economic pain we're experiencing right now. So are you willing to pay ridiculously high gas prices for the foreseeable future and suffer through a very serious economic downturn in order to put pressure on Vladimir Putin and Russia? Now, some Americans would be willing to do that, but most would not. Back on Friday, we learned the U.S. economy is headed in the wrong direction a lot quicker than most of the experts had anticipated. The Atlanta Fed's GDP Now model is currently projecting that economic growth for the second quarter of 2022 will be negative 2.1%. Now, U.S. GDP growth was negative during the first quarter, and if U.S. GDP growth is negative again in the second quarter, that will mean that we are already in a recession right now. The Atlanta Fed's GDP Now model should be taken very seriously because it has a very strong track record of accuracy. In fact, according to Nicholas Colas, co-founder of Datatrek Research, GDP Now has a strong track record, and the closer we get to July 28th's release of the initial estimate of quarter two GDP, the more accurate it becomes. Michael Snyder says, if it is confirmed later this month that we're already in a recession, it won't exactly be a surprise. But the good news is that so far, this new economic downturn is not that severe. Unfortunately, we continue to see signs that things will soon get much worse. The pace of layoffs is really starting to accelerate. This is especially true in the tech industry. I mean, at this point, even Facebook is looking to thin the ranks. 
He quotes from an article that says, in addition to the hiring freeze, Zuckerberg also noted the company was leaving some vacant positions at the company unfilled and turning up the heat on performance management to weed out staffers who are unable to meet certain KPIs. Realistically, Zuckerberg said there are probably a bunch of people at the company who shouldn't be here. Adding part of my hope by raising expectations and having more aggressive goals and just kind of turning up the heat a little bit is that uh, I think some of you might decide that this place isn't for you. And that self-selection is okay with me. Meanwhile, Michael Snyder says we are seeing Americans cut back on their spending at a frightening pace. In fact, one recent survey discovered that a whopping 83% of all Americans have slashed personal spending due to soaring prices. Provident Bank, based in New Jersey, found 83% of respondents slashed personal spending due to soaring prices of food and gasoline with 23% indicating they had to make drastic changes to their spending for financial survival. Oof. Sound familiar? Okay. According to the survey results of 600 adults, 10.5% of respondents eliminated all non-essential purchases, and nearly 72% said they made at least some changes to personal travel habits. And Wall Street seems to have finally gotten the message that very hard times are ahead. The first half of 2022 was the worst first half of the year for the S&P 500 since 1970. And the index has now plunged into bear market territory. He has an article here that says this all came a day after the S&P 500 posted a more than 16% quarterly loss, its biggest one-quarter fall since March of 2020. For the first half, the broader market index dropped 20.6% for its largest first-half decline since 1970. It also tumbled into bear market territory, down more than 21% from a record high set in early January. So Michael Snyder says the Biden administration is openly admitting that more economic suffering is on the way, but we're being told that it's necessary. In fact, last Wednesday, or a week ago yesterday, CNN interviewed a key economic advisor to Joe Biden named Brian Deese. And what uh, Brian Deese said during that interview is making headlines all over the globe. CNN anchor Victor Blackwell interviewed Deese on Thursday and cited that uh, that director of national intelligence, uh, Avril Haines, said on Wednesday the war between Russia and Ukraine could be a grinding struggle for years. Blackwell said, I think everyone understands why this is happening, but is it sustainable? What do you say to those families who say, listen, we can't afford to pay four eighty-five a gallon for months, if not years. This is not sustainable. Deese, who was formerly the global head of sustainable investing at BlackRock, replied, What we heard from the president today was about the stakes. This is about the future of the liberal world order, and we have to stand firm. What's this we stuff, pale face? Michael Snyder says, no thank you. I don't want anything to do with a liberal world order, and I'm sure most of you don't either. In the old days, they called it a new world order, but that phrase now has so many negative connotations to it, they decided to come up with something new. Would someone please tell them that liberal world order is even worse? These guys really stink at branding. Why do we even need a world order in the first place? Why can't we just try to get along with everyone instead of trying to force our twisted values on the entire planet? He says, I really wish that the U.S. and Russia would have just left Ukraine alone and allowed them to determine their own fate. But needless to say, that was never going to happen. Now the U.S. and Russia are engaged in a horrifying proxy war and countless Ukrainians are being sacrificed like pawns on a chessboard. He also points out if both sides continue to escalate this conflict, it could ultimately bring us to the brink of nuclear war. But at least we'll be supporting the future of the liberal world order. And isn't that what is, what's really important? Yeah.
Many of us have been relentlessly warning about where all this foolishness will eventually lead. But he says most of the population doesn't want to listen. Sadly, men will just continue to support the current thing, no matter what the consequences are. The first half of 2022 has been full of surprises, but Michael Snyder says, I'm expecting global events to accelerate even more during the second half of this year. So hold on to your hats. He says, because I believe things are about to get really, really crazy out there. I'm sorry, that's that's probably not, you know, the kind of soothing, comforting news that, hey, you know what, relax, it's all going to be all right, we're all going to be just fine. It's uh, it's a little bit a uh, little bit spooky to think that this is what's going on. And uh, look at the risk of of piling a little more uh, panic on top of uh, already growing panic. I really think that the thing that we need to watch, in my opinion, the thing to watch most closely, is what is happening with food. Not just the food on the shelves of the grocery store, but look at what is happening with crops. Look at the ability to replace that food that's being purchased right now. And if possible, do something about bettering your position in terms of either producing more of your own food through a garden, a greenhouse, keeping chickens or other small livestock around, beekeeping. I think that uh, this is going to be of critical importance. And I don't say this from the standpoint of, ah, we're all going to die. It's terrible. You know, we should be just scared to death. I don't think we should be running around in a state of panic, but... I also believe the situation is much more serious than uh, the powers that be are willing to let on, and probably for good reason. They know if we if we saw the seriousness, we would demand a course change. My concern is that most people are not going to recognize how serious things are until they can't get food at any price. And that's the moment where they're going to realize, wow, I had the chance to do something about this, and I chose not to do it, or I chose to, you know, turn a deaf ear to those nut jobs that were talking about this and those crackpots who thought that the sky was falling. Look, I, I, I don't want to believe it either. I want to believe that things are going to work themselves out and, and they're going to be just great. But I can't deny, I've, I've been paying attention, not just to, you know, the geopolitics of what's going on, but I've been much better connected in these last few years to where our food comes from. In my show notes today, I actually include a tweet from, uh, this is one of the commentators from the Young Turks show and the co-founder of Justice Democrats, young man by the name of Kyle Kalinske. And he's, uh, he's in an airplane, shoots a picture out the window. This is the land by the Colorado-Kansas border from Plain. And it's the patchwork, you know, of, of farmland out there. But his comment is, pretty cool. I have no idea why it looks like this. The lesson you can take away from this is no matter how times change, socialists will never figure out how food is produced. And if you've never spent time in in farm country, if if you've never seen the cycle, you know, from planting to harvest, I guess it's an easy thing to take for granted. Well, if I need food, I go to the grocery store. Okay, I live right in the heart of agricultural country right now. And I'm very encouraged when I see those fields. The crops are growing, the potatoes are growing, the corn, the barley, the beans. But the question that remains is, is it always going to be like this? I don't think many people are going to like the answer. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Okay, so I spent some time in that last segment talking about uh, food and (laughs) talking about uh, economic downturns, you know, some kind of scary stuff. Let me, uh, before I go any further, just offer that uh, there is a way you can do something about it. Go to one of my sponsors. That would be lifesavingfood.com. I've got a link right there in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Click on lifesavingfood.com. Spend a few minutes looking around and just see if there isn't something that could help put your mind at ease. It's really that simple. There's a lot to choose from right now. It's not always going to be this way. As demand ramps up, prices tend to go up and availability tends to go down. But there's a lull, and this is a good time to take advantage of it. That's lifesavingfood.com. So how far are you willing to go to live on your own terms? Now, there are a couple different ways I could ask that question. How much comfort are you willing to give up? Uh, what would you, to what length would you be willing to go to assert that, you know what, this is my life, I will live it as I choose? Got an article here from the Good Citizen Substack that points out for at least 2 million Americans, you know what the answer is as to how far they'd be willing to go to live life on their own terms? Mexico. Disparate, interconnected neighbors and the futility of devotion to an America that no longer exists prompts the good citizen to ask, when will Mexico build a wall? Now, the good citizen says, what if there was someone you loved in life who was so damaged beyond repair that no matter what you did, no matter how you planned or schemed or made an effort to get them help, you knew in your mind every avenue was hopeless? In A River Runs Through It, author Norman McLean recalls one of the final sermons of his minister father in which he recounts the difficulties in understanding his younger brother Paul's self-destructive gambling and drinking behavior that put him on a troubled path to an early death. His father proclaims that even those who elude us for reasons we may never know are still worthy of our love. Now the good citizen says, what if that someone you loved was poisonous? and brought out the worst in you by abusing you, manipulating you, taking your money, exploiting your obedience, using your generosity and compliance, sacrificing your children, while making you promises that they knew would never be kept, while offering you little to nothing in return, knowing you'd still be there in the morning, no matter what. Well, the psychologist would say you're a victim. You're being abused, perhaps even suffering from Stockholm Syndrome, and you need to leave immediately and seek refuge where you can. And what if that someone was instead the nation of your birth and its government that has spoiled and desecrated all of its once hallowed institutions while abusing you and threatening you with jail if the fruits of your labors are not paid every April by tax day? Sorry, I know that one stings, but a lot of truth. That's why it stings. The good citizen says the American people instinctually know their elected officials do not represent them. They know who they truly represent and to what ends it serves in their own destruction. And yet every April, people pay for this extortion racket like millions of Stockholm Syndrome sufferers because they know those who wise up and refuse will be made an example of in the same way the mafia does. Taxation has always been government extortion and theft. And it always will be, no matter how righteous a government claims to be. And don't they all? Working and retired, double-taxed Americans of all classes are now subsidizing the accelerated demise of their nation and themselves. Very few appear capable of asking that simple question rooted in the founding of their own nation. What the hell do I get for my taxes? And increasingly, the honest answer should range from jack squat to the paragraph above that lists all the ways the governments abuse and subjugate, harass American citizens. 
Well, two million people from all over the world have been allowed to walk across the U.S.-Mexico border with impunity since the puppet of global oligarchs was installed through a fraudulent election. Many walk across the border with debit cards financed by the United Nations or Soros-backed groups, others with the help of violent drug cartels, human traffickers, even the U.S. government that has accelerated their air transport directly to swing states and red states to turn them purple and blue. The colors of a demographic bruising intended to never heal the nation. But if you dare say anything about this cynical plot to keep Democrats in power through national destruction that Republicans only performatively and rhetorically oppose, well, then you, dear reader, are racist and xenophobic. You're no longer allowed to love your country or seek to protect it from invaders. You must surrender it without uttering a word about your replacement, the absence of the rule of law, or the destruction of the very ideals you may have once held above the na- about the nation of your birth that you might still love despite its abusive treatment of you. The good citizen says the last Western empire is falling before our eyes, for better or worse, and those who value liberty and bodily autonomy are running out of places in the world for refuge from tyranny. People are incapable of recognizing tyranny and having been convinced of its rebranding as safety, security, and frictionless convenience for mass digital surveillance and thought control. Thanks to public indoctrination centers formerly known as schools and higher education, the majority of the population still holds on to the belief that government has the solutions to the very problems created and exacerbated by its hands. The harsh economic realities have yet to shake most taxpayers from their high-fructose corn syrup-induced lethargy and digitally enhanced catatonia. Central bank and government-created hyperinflation are on the horizon. Savings accounts are now depleted. Consumer credit debt is maxed out with every visit to the gas pump while the hands that control the dummy-in-chief corpse occupying the executive are busy destroying domestic energy production while blaming everything on Putin. Auto loan delinquencies are skyrocketing. And soon, with higher interest rates, mass layoffs, and then crashing home prices, there will be another national wave of mortgage defaults and foreclosures. Now, there was a time when the man of the house, when Americans could afford homes and men were encouraged rather than discouraged to be present in the rearing of families, could work a simple job and afford everything and not have to worry about paying for food, gas, clothing, a mortgage, summer and winter vacations, and even able to put aside a little each month for college savings and retirement accounts. That former America has been put on SSRIs and slaughtered itself. Two parents working two jobs doesn't even cut it anymore, assuming they can even stay together. Forget about affording even a year of university, which isn't worth a rotten penny in their current iteration of Marxist indoctrination daycare institutions. By 2028, Social Security will be insolvent, which David Martin points out is why they're busy offing as many future recipients as possible. Too much middle-class prosperity in a nation of healthy individuals and families is terrible for social engineers and global technocrats who need serfs to lord over and experiment on. Global engineers may realize any outcome by owning and controlling governments. The terminal rot that festers in the halls of the District of Corruption is one of the most in, one, is of the most insidious nature because it smiles and dances out in the open for all to see, always performing and screaming to the rest of the world that it is something. It's not ever intended to be by the original framers, that being representative democracy. One visit to a single website and any citizen can see for themselves who their representatives really work for. That website, opensecrets.org. 
Every industry owns a fraction of every politician. There is nobody who works in public service that can't be bought, bribed, pushed around, coerced, or kicked out for refusing to be bought, bribed, and coerced. The private-public revolving door ensures every government agency is owned by the industry it's charged with policing at the expense of the welfare of citizens and at great taxpayer cost. The pork brunches are never-ending and there are no stomachs that are ever full. Each industry connects its bank accounts to Treasury Department's computers and pays Congress and the President to initiate Control-P operations. Bills are written by industries that will benefit from deregulation, depleted oversight, and pointless government contracts that only serve to grease palms and degrade the quality of service and products for citizens. Even experimental medicines are approved without trials and with regulators publicly stating that the only way they'll know if it works is by approving it. Electricity, water, cable, cell phone bills, and other utilities are now in the three digits monthly, excluding all the other entertainment add-on subscriptions to distract people to death while gaining no new intelligence or information useful in making life choices. Meanwhile, the divide between so-called red and blue states continues to be instigated to new extremes with a constant focus on culture war triggers that inflame baser instincts as the politicization of everything in life becomes paramount in splitting and conquering the people. Wow, that is on target. Nobody is allowed to deviate in their thinking or have opinions on anything that might reveal an unholy political alliance. Fascists, white supremacists, and racists are labeled guilty with once incendiary labels that no longer have any meaning and are persecuted with the slightest whiff of wrong think. The cults of diversity, equity, inclusion, and the LGBTQ edicts are written into public and private handbooks on employee behavior and hiring practices. Equity being the opposite of meritocracy ensures incompetence reigns everywhere within the ranks of the expert class. While simple questions like, what is a woman, can no longer be honestly answered without one incurring the wrath of the cult adherents. The war on nature and common sense is just another front in the war on the American people by denying reality and degrading sociocultural cohesion. Pretty powerful stuff. There's much more in this article. I would encourage you to check it out for yourself. This is from the Good Citizen Stubbs Substack, rather. You might even want to subscribe. This is worth a paying subscription. And you might want to start thinking about an exit plan if your circumstances allow. Oh, I know, such a suggestion would have been unthinkable even a few years ago. But the question is, how far would you be willing to go to live life on your own terms? Only you can answer that. This is The Brian Hyde Show.